We will now turn to the Word of God. We're going to continue in our series going through Ezekiel. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapters 12 and 13 today. And we've been asking ourselves the question, can these dry bones live? And of course, our hope, our contention is at some point we will certainly hear the clear word of God that they will live. And uh, that will be well, it was spoken last week to us in the passage. And it has um, there's been a little thread running through every week, um, giving us hope that uh, that the dead and dry bones of um, Ezekiel's time and of our time and a later time will indeed uh, live. But I'm going to invite uh, Aaron Lorette forwards to read chapter 12, and then Megan will read uh, chapter 13 for us this morning. Thank you both. And hear the word of God. Good morning. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. Who have eyes to see, but see not. Who have ears to hear, but hear not. For they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage, and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And you shall go out yourself at evening in their sight, as those who do who must go into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall, and bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder, and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face, that you may not see the land, for I have made you a sign of the house of Israel. And I did as I was commanded. I brought out my baggage by day as baggage for exile, and in the evening I dug through the wall with my own hands. I brought out my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in their sight. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, This oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign for you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes. And I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him into Babylon the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. And I will scatter toward every wind all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops, and I will unsheath my sword after them. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. But I will let a few of them escape from the sword, from famine and pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the nations where they go and may know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink water with trembling and with anxiety and say to the people of the land, Thus saith the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the land of Israel, they shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink water in dismay. In this way her land will be stripped of all its 
of all it contains on account of the violence of all those who dwell in it. And the inhabited cities shall be laid waste, and the Lord shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel, saying, The days grow long, and every vision comes to nothing? Tell them, therefore, Thus saith the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, The days are near, and the fulfillment of every vision. For there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, and I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. But in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer that I speak. But the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. Chapter 13. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets, excuse me, who follow their own spirit, and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel, that it might stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination, whenever you have said, declares the Lord? Although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying, lying visions, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets and who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash what it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out, and when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. 
And you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts. Prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down the souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listens to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds. And I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds. Your veils also I will tear off, and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall know more in your hand as prey, and and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him, and you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. Therefore, you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you for reading, Aaron and uh, Megan. Every week it gets a little more interesting, this uh, story, these words out of Ezekiel. Well, this morning I want to get the ball rolling by asking a rhetorical question. Just something just for you to sit for a moment and think on. So don't shout out any answers, okay? Just think on these things. What would you say is more damaging Persecution or heresy? Some of you may ask, well, what is heresy? (laughs) Heresy is a religious belief that is false. It's a teaching about God that's false. So to rephrase the question now, is it more damaging to be persecuted or to believe a lie about God? What might be more damaging? Now, I know there are degrees here, right? There's. You know, serious persecution and perhaps softer, milder, and likewise with heresy, right? So there's a scale here. But think of serious persecution, maybe life-threatening persecution, and serious false teaching, serious heresy. Which is worse? Which causes more damage? When we turn to the Scriptures, we see something very fascinating. This is very germane to what we're going to be looking at in Ezekiel today. What we see is the writers of Scripture, far from saying anything negative about persecution, we find them not only expecting it, but calling the believers to receive it and not to fear it. We read things like this, just to give you a few samples right out of the Bible. This would be verses you could, I'm not going to read them all, but you could jot the the address down and look at it later if you want. 1 Thessalonians 3. Three and four. Let's quickly read this one. No one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for them. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. 
1 Thessalonians 3. Another passage out of Revelation chapter 2. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Or Matthew 5. And there's also 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. If you want to write that one down, you can look at that one in your own time. But we just went through 1 Peter, so I'm not going to read that one. 1 Peter 4. And then Matthew 5. Here are the words of, of our Lord. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right out of Matthew 5. When we read these words, we don't get the picture that persecution is damaging, do we? Maybe they recognize that it does damage, certainly, and it harms and it's painful. But there are all these other descriptions and adjectives that are used of persecution. Certainly it's hard. Certainly it can be deadly. Painful, certainly. But over and over again, the Bible says, when we are persecuted or suffer because of our faith, that we are not to fear. Somehow we are blessed. We are blessed. That doesn't sound damaging to me. However, think of the other option in that initial question. Heresy or false teaching, lies about God. Let's think about this. Think about what serious false teaching does. And let me read you a few passages about this out of the Bible. Again, we could go on and on just to give you a couple of quick ones as we get started here. Second Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There is destruction, destruction, right, when it comes to false teaching. Galatians 1, verses 6 and following, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, he says. Matthew 7, it's again, the words of our Lord, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And that's not even to mention what we find in the early chapters of Genesis, right? What do we have in the early chapters of Genesis? A lie, a false teaching plunges all of humanity into sin and death and ruin, right? When the serpent comes and says, did God say? Did he really say that? Of course, he was saying, as we talked about in men's group this morning, that was a statement, not a real question. It was a statement, right? To deceive and mislead. So here in these few passages, we've, we've seen that great destruction can happen at the hands of false teaching. The Bible is very clear. It is not persecution we should fear, but lies. It's not insults we should fear, but false teaching about God. Again, that's not to downplay the seriousness of persecution or the reality of it and the pain it causes in this world. But I think history would bear this out as well, that 
that it is not persecution that has ultimately harmed the church. In fact, we could say that, as some of the early church fathers would say, that it's the seed. It's the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? Through persecution, somehow it fans the flames of the kingdom of God and spreads it. In the long run, it is false teaching that is so very destructive to the church. Yet over and over again, so why do I mention this? Why do I begin this way? Over and over again, speaking of us here as well, so this is not as, you know, again, people out there somewhere, certainly applies to, to folks out there, but in here, we mix these two things up. And we get them backwards over and over again. We run from persecution and run towards the lies, run towards false teaching. We're drawn to it. And we see this in our passage today, and we see it all around us in the church today. We are prone to this. Why? Why, why do you and I do this? Why did Israel do this? Why did the New Testament church deal with this? So many of the letters in the New Testament were dealing with false teachings that had arisen, problems with the teaching, heresies. Why are we so prone to this error? Well, there's many reasons and probably we could have some lengthy conversation about that and you guys might have your own ideas, but I've got just a few to sort of plop out there for you as we get started this morning. One of the first ones, I think, is because we're afraid. Right? We run away from persecution and into we make compromises and run to things that aren't good and right because we're fearful. We're afraid to take our stand, right? We fear for our job or our reputation Maybe what our neighbors might think of us, so we compromise when we're asked that hard question or when we're put on the spot or when it comes time to talk about some issue, whatever. We're fearful. Another reason might be because we, be we that we believe false teaching because we like it more than its alternative, if we're really honest. We don't like the truth sometimes, so it's hard to embrace it. So we believe distortions and we allow our minds to twist the truth so that we can feel better. Maybe have a version of the truth that we like more. We prefer the false over the true. And a third reason, sometimes we believe false teaching because we're legitimately deceived. We are legitimately deceived sometimes. This is a result in many cases because I think we're slothful. And not diligent in seeking the Lord and studying His Word and praying and trying to understand something. We kind of hope it will come to us in the by and by. We read the newspaper more than the Bible or we spend more time on the golf course than in seeking the Lord. Probably not up here in Vermont, but you know. But we spend time doing other things more when perhaps we could be trying to understand something and we just aren't interested. Which leads to deception. So whatever the reasons are, this morning we need to get a grasp on just how dangerous false teaching is. First of all, I want us to understand a little bit of some of the traits of false teaching. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, and we don't have time to do a full exposition of all these different things. We're just going to talk a little bit about false teaching. And the people in Ezekiel's day had been led astray by many false prophets, and of course that's clear from our passage, and in chapter 13... Verse 4, Ezekiel calls these uh, teachers uh, jackals, he calls them. One scholar writes this, 
quote, wherever and whenever and however it manifests itself, it is invariably mistaken, usually taking, uh, telling men what they want to hear. So this is one of the core characteristics of false teaching. Okay, And this is the case today. It tells people what they want to hear. Okay? People are longing for a certain message. False prophet pops up. I'll give them that message. I'll say what everybody wants to hear. Maybe not what they need to hear, but what they want to hear. And we see that today. And again, this was run amok during Ezekiel's day. So today we're going to hear a word about false teaching. And we're going to see a few things about false teaching. I hope anyways. But before we jump into it, I want to just very quickly, by way of reminder, um, catch us up on what is going on up to this point in the book. You see, what was happening here in this moment in time, and this would have been in the 6th century uh, B.C., before Christ, was this. Ezekiel and many of his countrymen, as we've again explained in previous weeks, but I know not everyone may have been here. You may have missed some of the, the weeks, and that's okay. Um, Ezekiel and his countrymen have been taken into captivity into a place called Babylon. Some still remained in Jerusalem. So the entire ethnic body of Israel wasn't removed uh, from Israel. Many were. Um, more were to come, as we'll see. And at this point here in our story, Ezekiel has been in Babylon for about six years at this point in this book. And the Lord has been appearing to him in various visions, giving him messages to deliver uh, to the people. Yet, at the same time, and we've touched on this again in previous weeks, there were others who were claiming that God was speaking to them in visions as well. And what they were saying, some of these people, was very much in contrast to what Ezekiel was saying. So they were saying something different and contradicting the message of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's message was consistent and strong. You've rebelled against God, and because you refuse to listen to the Lord and repent and acknowledge your sins and turn from them, God has taken you into exile and is going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. This was the very clear message coming through. Yet the false prophets were saying something different. They were saying something to the effect of this. These prophets are so negative. They've been preaching these terrible messages uh, to us for years now. And look, Jerusalem is still there. The temple is still there. God is not going to judge us. That was the essence of what some of these false teachers were saying. So there's this struggle going on as we come to this passage for the minds of the people. And at this point, the exiles in Babylon are not paying a whole lot of attention to Ezekiel. We get the sense there's a growing interest in what he's saying. Um, so there's some evidence for that. But overall, people are still just kind of not particularly interested in what Ezekiel has to say. So we arrive at our passage today in chapter 12. And right here at the beginning, the Lord gives Ezekiel a new message to deliver. And once again, Ezekiel is commanded to act out the message without words before any explanation is given. A few weeks ago, I suggested that perhaps one of the goals of this was to grab people's attention. You know, perhaps we're not told exactly. At my house, there's often several people uh, talking at the same time. A lot of voices competing for attention. 
after a while, you're not really hearing any of it because it's just noise. Any of you all familiar with that kind of atmosphere, right? Just noise. So I think perhaps what God is doing here is taking a different approach, calling Ezekiel to do street theater. Maybe this will draw them in, grab their attention, and they'll listen. So I think God's desire here, of course, and certainly Ezekiel's desire, uh, both of these um, people that are coming to the people long for them to listen and to understand what God has to say, but they're not paying attention. We see the action sermon that uh, Ezekiel's uh, told to, to sort of act out before the people in verses 1 through uh, 7. We're not going to reread it, but basically what happens is this right there in chapter 12. The Lord commands Ezekiel to gather up his stuff by daylight and then carry it out before the people. He then would return to his house and dig a hole in the mud or brick house uh, from the outside and go back into his house from the outside. Later at dusk that evening, he would leave his home again with that bag through the hole that he dug earlier. One scholar, uh, Peter Naylor, in his excellent commentary on Ezekiel, really super helpful (laughs) material uh, in that book. Thank you, uh, Dr. Naylor. Appreciate that. Um, He explains that the first exit from his home, so the first time Ezekiel goes out, was Ezekiel acting out the first group of exiles leaving, leaving for Babylon. So again, remember I said some people were taken into exile and a whole bunch of others were left, right? There's a bunch of others that are still... Uh, in in uh, uh, Jerusalem and Israel there that haven't been taken into exile yet. So this first exit from his home with his bag is Ezekiel depicting that first group leaving and being taken into uh, Babylon. After the people began to gather in the streets, they see, okay, here's Ezekiel. Here's the crazy guy again. Crazy Ezekiel out here doing this stuff. Let's go see what's going on. So they start to gather. After that's happened, they're, they're sort of watching He's doing another one of his little things here. Um, He then returned to his home and digs this hole from the outside. And this, we believe, again, scholars believe, again, this is what Dr. Naylor suggests, and I think it makes good sense, um, that this constitutes a change in roles. So by digging through the wall, he was now perhaps acting out the attacking Babylonians who were going to be coming through the wall to Jerusalem. So now he's taking on the the representation of the Babylonians who were going to be digging through the wall of Jerusalem to get uh, the people that remained in the the, uh, city there and uh, laying siege to them and taking them uh, into exile. Then presumably his leaving once again out of that same hole that they just tore and blew open in the wall uh, symbolized that Babylon was not done and that more people would be following in exile soon. So getting the bag again. Now the second group's leaving through that, that hole that the Babylonians just tore in, in the wall, including the king. And so you'll see there in chapter 12, he talks about this prince um, that's mentioned there. Now we can't see in all of these things. That's referring to, uh, to the king that is there in Jerusalem, the king of the Jews, of the Israelites. This explanation is given in the verses following with some added detail, which we won't be getting into at the moment. We could go on and on and on about all the details. So then in verses 17 to 20, Ezekiel is given another action sermon to act out. So he acts out this bizarre 
thing of grabbing his bag kind of hastily and heading out and doing the digging the hole in the wall and all that stuff. And then a little bit later, he's given another action sermon to act out. And in this one, Ezekiel was commanded to eat his bread with quaking and, and take his drink with anxiety. This would have brought to mind the previous sermon that he did some time ago where he was uh, cooking over you know, manure and with the, the wartime rations and all of that. If you all remember that story, some of you were with us. You can go back and read it in the earlier chapters of Ezekiel. But this would have brought that to mind to the people watching. Wow, he's doing that thing again with the food. Here, Ezekiel would have been commanded to eat, eat in such a way. I thought about actually getting some stuff and trying to demonstrate it up here for you. That would make a huge mess and I'd be, you know, cleaning it up. But he would have been under such emotional distress, he wouldn't have been able to get the food in his mouth. If you can imagine, you know, he's, he can't even get the food in his mouth and he's spilling it all over himself. This would have been very concerning to the people what is he doing here what is going on if you've ever seen someone eat in that manner it's bothersome right so what he's saying here of course is that you're going to be going through something and you're going to be trying to eat while all of this is happening and it's going to be you're going to be an emotional wreck okay so he's trying to depict this this exile is going to be incredibly incredibly terrible Whatever was going through the minds of the people here, as they observe, is not good. Right? Either they think Ezekiel's a madman, he can't even get his you know, cracker in his mouth or whatever, or they're fearing for what is coming. Evidence suggests that perhaps most of them just thought Ezekiel was crazy, that he was crazy. Probably because there were other voices, these false teachers and prophets who were offering contrary visions and interpretations of what was being said. Maybe more preferable interpretations of what was being acted out and said. And this is where our false uh, teaching really steps onto the scene in our passage before us today. What we're going to see here in response is kind of some responses to Ezekiel's sermons and they're in the form of objections. So we're going to see in our passage a couple of eject objections that are thrown out there in response to these action sermons and the words in the words of Ezekiel. The first one can be found in verse 21 and 22. If you want to flip there or to be maybe Felicia can pull it up on the screen, verse 21 and 22 there in chapter 12. And it says this. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel, saying, The days grow long, and every vision comes to nothing. Apparently, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others had been bringing messages like this one of calamity for so long that a proverb had developed that basically said all of their warnings would come to nothing. So if you can imagine, they've heard this over and over and over again, and, and perhaps the things that are being threatened or they're being warned about have not happened. And so this proverb developed. And essentially it says, don't worry about what he's saying. Don't worry about it. This idea is probably rooted in the false teachers, again, who were saying things like Babylon is going to be broken soon. Remember last week we talked about how don't, you know, don't build your houses, don't settle down, don't get married because the exile will be over. Remember, remember we said that last week. And this is in uh, Jeremiah 29, 25, somewhere in there. I can't remember the exact reference. But Jeremiah, contemporary of Ezekiel, of Ezekiel, is saying you need to settle down. 
The exile is going to be lengthy. Okay, it's going to go on for 70 years, he says. Settle in, get used to it. And upper popping all these false prophets saying, nope, 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 don't build a house, don't do nothing. Everyone's coming home really soon. The other objection, so that's the first objection. They're saying, oh, these prophecies don't come to anything. Don't worry about it. The other objection can be found in verse 27. If you have your Bible, you can flip there. Where the false teachers or the prophets are basically saying, yeah, maybe it'll happen, but in a far time off, in a far off time. We got some time. It's going to be our kids, or our grandkids that are going to deal with this, you know, kind of mentality. In other words, don't worry about it right now. Okay. And now we see the first thing about false teaching and these little objections. We might call this the allure of false teaching. First, the first point is the allure of false teaching. False teaching is seductive. It is attractive. It tells people what they want to hear. The people in Ezekiel's day were drawn to these false teachers because their message was more attractive. They liked it. They preferred it. Who wants to hear what Ezekiel's saying? None of us. They certainly didn't. So up popped these teachers saying, oh, don't worry about that. Something better is coming. Flip over to chapter 13 quickly with me. And you'll see what these false teachers were seducing the people with. Verse 10 there. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. God is speaking through Ezekiel directly to those false prophets who are objecting to the message. They were saying, peace, peace. Everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about this. That's an alluring, seductive message. The problem is that it was not from God. It was not God's message. And this is one of the hallmarks of false teaching. It is attractive. It is alluring. Maybe some of you are thinking right now, I thought this as I was putting this together. Well, isn't our message supposed to be attractive and alluring? Don't we have good news for people? Well, certainly. And I would say, yes, it is. However, not in the way that the false teaching is attractive and alluring. You see, in the New Testament, Jesus offered people life and joy and peace, all the things that people wanted, all the things people were seeking after in Ezekiel's day. However, those things came at a cost. It came at a cost. A person has to deny themselves. Stop living for yourself. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Didn't he? There's a cost involved with following Jesus. And it involves something called repentance, which is a turning around, a changing of our lifestyle and our ways. No part of you is left untouched in that process. You're a new creation when you follow Jesus. That's a hard message that involves sacrifice. He told the people that were, were wanting to come after him that they would be gaining a treasure. But in order to gain the treasure, what they have to do? You've got to you know, buy the field. You've got to sell your stuff and buy the field, right, that the treasure's in. You, there's some cost involved. What he meant was that Ultimately, he has to have supreme authority over our lives. Jesus will not be second place to anything or anyone. He's worthy of first place to have the supremacy. 
whatever he says goes. That's a cost, right? That's different than just doing whatever you want to do. False teachers want to give you the treasure with no cost. They want to give you the joy and the peace with no sacrifice, no repentance. But that's not God's way. So that's the first thing to notice here about false teaching. It's seductive. It appeals to a part of us that longs for certain things, but it wants to give us to them the wrong price. Right? It appeals to the wrong part of us. Now, lest we think that false teaching comes only in one size package, think again. We're going to see here that false teaching has many forms. This is our second point. The many forms of false teaching. Here in these two chapters, Ezekiel comes up against various forms of false teaching. And I want you to notice how all of these are alive and well today. The first form may be the most obvious one that we see there in the passage. If you're looking at uh, chapter 13, kind of near the middle to end, is witchcraft and magic. Right? This is probably the most obvious kind of, you know, blatantly false uh, approach to getting things that we want. We see this in verses 17 and following. I'm not going to elaborate on this much, except to say that people are drawn into this again because there's something attractive about it. I mean, I think probably a lot of us haven't dabbled in these things and don't know a lot about these things, perhaps. But there are promises that are made to people that fall into this trap. There are promises that are made. You can manipulate people and circumstances to fit your desires, to get what you want from them. This is really what magic and witchcraft are about. Manipulation. The problem is that it does not look for God's wisdom. It does not look for God's provision and power does not seek to trust him for the way things are in their lives. It it says it's got to be this way, not this way. So I'm going to do something to change my circumstances, to manipulate things and control them to be the way I want them to be. In the days of Ezekiel, even God's people had fallen into this trap. So that's one form of these of these lies that, that they can come to us in. The second form we see here in this passage again, which is also found Uh, Throughout uh, our world today, sadly, we see in verses 1 through 16 there, that first section in chapter 13. And here we see him mention folks who utter lying visions and claim to speak for God when they only speak out of their own spirits. These are people who claim to be prophets and are not prophets. Oh, we've got a lot of these today, too. There are many today who claim to speak for God, but say many things that go against the teaching of God's word. I want to caution you against listening to them. Those who call themselves modern day apostles and prophets, be very careful with such folks. And there's much more to say about that. I'm going to resist the temptation to go into that. But we see this form of, of false teaching today. And the hallmark in this is things will be said that don't come true. Right? Things will be said that contradict the word of God. And you can know immediately that these are false prophets and teachers. And finally, a third form of false teaching we can see right out of our passage today comes to us in the form of what we might call little pithy sayings, like a proverb. We've already seen this in chapter 12. The days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. This sort of pithy little short soundbite that was said to just refute all of what Ezekiel was doing. 
I would suggest that this is probably the form of false teaching that many of us here uh, fall into. And perhaps this is for us the most dangerous of the lot because it is so subtle. It is so subtle and short and pithy and simple. The tiny expression that you think nothing of but is found everywhere. These phrases, these ideas, these little proverbs have been so often repeated, even by folks inside the church, that they're just assumed to be true by virtually anyone and everyone. Phrases like this, just to give you a few examples. There's a lot more we could say about this. God won't give you more than you can handle. That's false teaching, folks. God often gives us more than we can handle without him. With him, we can do all things as he strengthens us and helps us and meets us. But that part's often left out, isn't it? Or phrases like, the devil made me do it. You ever heard anybody say that? We make a bad choice and we'll blame it on the devil. Satan's definitely real, but it's our own sinful nature that is taken advantage of, right? We, we make these choices and harm ourselves and others. Or, God helps those who help themselves. Right? You've heard that one many, many times. These are examples of some of these little pithy proverbs, things that are repeated constantly. Or when someone passes away, haven't got another angel today. This, this is false teaching, people. First of all, people don't turn into angels. But second of all, not everybody goes to heaven to be with God. These are everywhere. And these are not even really what I'm talking about here. I'm also talking about those sayings and those slogans in the world around us. It's the billboard. It's the yard sign. It's the everyday greeting. These kinds of false teachings are so prevalent that they're almost considered common sense today. And I could say some of the little statements. I've done that in previous sermons. I won't do it again here. But these things that we hear everywhere, these mantras, these cultural creeds, and I just want to ask, are you paying attention to the lies that are everywhere around you? Are you? They're in your newspaper. They're on your neighbor's yard sign next door or hanging in their window or off their porch. And they're definitely in the television shows you watch. Yes, even the good ones, folks. The Hallmark movies and in Disney. The quote good ones, right? They are in the mouths of our country's leaders and in the mouths of church leaders, even in our very area. Are we paying attention? False teaching comes in many, many forms. But the most dangerous is the one that is so prevalent that it's like the air you breathe and it appeals to that selfish part of you. These lies come just as much from the father of lies, Satan, as witchcraft. But we are disarmed by these soft little lies. That's kind of the way we view them, aren't these little soft lies, which are packed up and presented to us by the pretty woman on TV or by the handsome athlete. Church, are you paying attention? Be aware of the many, many forms false teaching can take. They were prevalent in Ezekiel's day, and again, they are prevalent today. 
These are the things that in the long run are more dangerous to our faith and to the church, more destructive than persecution. What do you do when the common sense of the day is wrong? When something is said and yelled and repeated so often, it's just the air we breathe. What do you do when it's wrong? When lies are so abundant that even the commonly accepted truths are wrong. This is the situation Ezekiel found himself in. What are we to do? As we go through the Bible and look at those who fell victim to this kind of false teaching, what we find is that they were led astray by their passions, by their passions. Okay, Paul says in a letter to his disciple, Timothy, listen to this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So I want to begin, or I want you to begin asking yourself, certainly this preaching it myself too, I don't mean to emphasize you, like wake up you guys, it's all of us here. We need to start asking ourselves this, these questions on a regular basis, especially when you hear something or see something that delights you to take an inventory of yourself and look in. Do I like this, this thing I'm hearing, this thing I'm seeing? Because it feels good and appeals to that wrong part of me or because it's actually true. This is the way we have to think because it's oftentimes our passions that mislead us. We want to believe that thing, that yard sign or whatever because everybody believes it. Man, it'd be a lot easier to believe that. It'd be a lot easier to just go with the current of the whole culture. But why do we feel that way? And it kind of gets back to those passions. We want comfort. We want things that aren't always good and right. So I want to challenge you to look inside when you're feeling these things and thinking these things. Because over time, even those small lies can lead to great destruction. And this is the third point on false teaching this morning. Let's look at the result or the outcome of false teaching. The destruction of false teaching. The result or the outcome of false teaching. I speak here not only of the false teachers, but also of those who believe them. The result of false teaching is destruction. I hope this is obvious from the book of Ezekiel. I don't have to, you know, state that and, and pound that over and over, right? This is clearly coming through the word of God here in Ezekiel that bad things happen when you believe lies, right? And when you turn from God and and you're naughty, right? Bad stuff happens, right? So I, I hope that's, that's coming through, right? When we turn from the Lord and we're not repentant and we're not uh, seeking Him, even when we sin and mess up, uh, it can be really destructive and bad. However, don't we doubt that at times? Don't we doubt that? We think, I can get away with this. I can do this. Or that's not so bad. Do you ever have those thoughts? Right? Doubt that false teaching is actually that destructive? Well, why? Why do we doubt this? I think one of the dangers of false teaching, and one of the reasons why we're tempted to think persecution is worse, is because believing false teaching or just listening to it or whatever doesn't feel dangerous in the moment. 
There are people all around us trapped in lies that seem happy and seem successful. They're fine. What's the big deal? Have you ever had that thought? It feels okay. The reason we're fine is not because it's okay to believe false teaching, but because God is very patient. God is very patient. God is so gracious and patient. He gives us time, doesn't he? He sends us warnings. He calls us back to himself. We see this in the story of the Old Testament over and over. The people of God would fall into the trap of lies and idolatry and reject the word of God. And then what would he do? He would send a prophet, right? Someone to go and speak the word to them and say, this is not right. Turn, repent and be made right once again. He was patient. However, we should not take his patience for granted or think it will always be this way. Because it will not. So we're prompted to think, man, a lot of bad stuff's been happening for a long time. God hasn't done anything. Or so it appears. He's up there sleeping. So it doesn't feel dangerous. But God is being very patient. Let's look at verses 26 through 28 in chapter 12 really quickly. We're going to wrap it up here in just a moment. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say the vision that he seems is for many days from now. And and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer. But the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. In other words, God's patience runs out. Do not take God's patience for granted. Even though evil and lies run amok all around us, it is not because God smiles upon it. God is patient and wants everyone to come to repentance. It's part of why it's so important to preach these books and to go through these things is to shake us up, right? And to wake us up so we don't fall asleep thinking God's falling asleep. He's not even there. He's not paying any attention. But a day is coming when the word of the Lord will be performed. It will. Everything Ezekiel said came to pass in that day. And so it will be in our day as well. There is a reckoning coming. There is a day of judgment coming. It's scary. I don't like talking about it any more than you don't like hearing about it. But it's real. It's not pleasant to talk about, but it is the truth. God will fulfill his word. So I want to ask as we close, who are you listening to? There is a way to know the truth. And it is here in this very special book right here. In this very special book. This is one of the things we think about every week when we're here together. One of the reasons why we take time to read large passages and, and, and listen to the word of God. This is a precious gift to us. We can know God here in these things. And this book, from start to finish, is going to tell us one message. If you don't get anything else I've said this morning, get this. There's only one message in this book. All of us have broken God's law, but that very same holy God has made a way for us to be right with him. That is the message of this book from start to finish. And that way is Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, this book is about Jesus. And we've touched on this every week as we've gone through even Ezekiel. Jesus is there. He is there. 
It's about how God made a way for you and for me to have the peace that we all desperately long for. That's why those people were listening to that message of the false prophets. Peace, peace. We long for peace. But a peace that that is truly a real peace is not accomplished by sweeping our problems under the rug. Acting like they're not there. But real peace, the kind of peace that Jesus gives is accomplished because our debt was paid and our sins were wiped away by the blood of the Son upon that cross. That's how peace happens between us and God. That peace is unshakable. We don't need false visions of what is going to happen or what might not happen. All we need is this assurance. And the men read it together uh, this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.1 For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's where peace comes from. When you get that. When you get that. But the question is, are you seeking that peace God's way through faith in Christ, through faith in what God has said and promised? Or are you being lured into a temporary fleeting false peace by listening to all the lies around us today and the false prophets today? Where is your peace coming from? Hear the word of God this morning. Believe and rest in the good news of all that he is for you and all that Jesus has done for you. Amen. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer now as we will respond with a beautiful song here at the end. Lord, we thank you that we can have peace, that peace is not just a message of the false prophets. There is a real peace, but it is a peace that comes with a cost. And you took that cost upon yourself. You established peace. You made peace by the blood of your cross and you call us to walk in your way. Lord, I pray that we would all seek by faith to walk in your way, to be a people of real peace, not fleeting, phony peace that just ignores the problems, but a peace that is built upon the unshakable truth of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you. We worship you. We love you. Amen.